Hello, you're listening to Dr. Baz of Grace Life Church in Naples, Florida. Thank you for joining us as we open God's Word. And may God's Spirit speak a personal word to you through it. Total depravity, we we want to understand our hearts, know that you have revealed this truth to us because first of all, it's true. And that we can't see the world, we don't understand you, we wouldn't know ourselves, we wouldn't appreciate our dip, our need of you if we didn't if we if we didn't accept this mournful truth. Um, and so I pray that you would overrule our pride and would allow us to celebrate the the wonderful nature of your amazing grace that you should save sinners like us and allow us to rejoice in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So our subject this morning on total depravity is is all about the spiritual condition of a man, and that means a man or a woman, before conversion. Uh, Most Christians understand that people before conversion are sinners. But what does that mean? Uh, What's the spiritual condition of a sinner? Now, the failure to understand the true condition of lost sinners leads to two things. First of all, a complete failure to know what it takes for a lost person to come to Christ, which, of course, affects how we present the gospel. And then secondly, a complete failure for believers to be on guard, as they should be, against their old nature, which they're still in possession of. So imagine two patients come into the ER, and one of them is diagnosed as dead. The other is diagnosed as being sick. Well, you can imagine that the treatment for one is going to be radically different from the other. But you can also imagine the folly that will be engaged in by the doctors if the patient who is deemed to be dead is diagnosed as being merely sick. Well, this is precisely what occurs in the spiritual realm when the doctrine of total depravity of man is rejected. So let's start by briefly examining the doctrine. What is the condition of man before God begin, before God starts dealing with him, before he's converted? Uh, this involves the answering of a, of a question. Is man merely sick spiritually Or is he dead? Ephesians 2. That's where we are. Verse 1 to 3, it says four things about the unbeliever. First of all, it says he's spiritually dead to God in transgressions and sins. As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sin. Second thing about you before you were converted is you were, whether you were aware of it or not, you were actively following Satan, in which you used to live when you followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Who's that? That's Satan. He's otherwise known as Beelzebub, which is the lord of the flies. When you followed him, who who was, in your case, and is at work in those who are disobedient to God. Third thing, you're not only spiritually dead, you're not only following Satan, but an unbeliever is wholly devoted to gratifying the cravings of this sinful nature of his. 
You gratified the cravings of your sinful nature, following its desires and its thoughts. And then fourthly, therefore, you were by nature an object of God's wrath. Like the rest, you were by nature objects of God's wrath. So that passage and many others declare that man before God gets a hold of him, he's not sick. He's dead. He's completely dead to God. Now, he's de dead to God, but how depraved is he? Well, in Jeremiah 17:1, Jeremiah describes man's sin as having been written with a pen of iron, with the point of a diamond, it is engraved upon the tablet of their heart. That means it's, 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 it's a part of their very nature. It's not just something they do on the outside. You know, we've heard this before, but you, you're not a sinner because you sinned. The only reason you sin in the first place is because you, that is who you are. It's engraved upon your nature. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4 to 6 says that the unsaved are a people loaded with guilt. Now, that's talking about from God's perspective. They may be running free and, 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 and feeling quite happy about themselves. They are a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord and spurned the Holy One of Israel, live as if there was no God, and turn their backs on him. Their whole head is injured. Their whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of their foot to the top of their head, there is no soundness, only wounds, welts, and open sores. This is God's description of all of us outside of him. Every person who is an unbeliever, nicest person in your neighborhood, that's who God says he is, which, which tells us that he's extensively depraved. Genesis 6.5 says our heart before we're saved, that is, is only evil all the time. So he, we're not only extensively depraved, we are continually depraved. And then Proverbs 21.10 says, the soul of the wicked, that is the unbeliever, relishes evil. So we're extensively depraved, we are continually depraved, and we are passionate, passionately depraved. How did that happen? Well, was it society that made me this bad? Is it true that as many people think that we're born into this world like a, like a virgin piece of paper upon which horrible people write their prejudices? Let's see what the word says. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Genesis 8.21 says, A man's heart is heart is evil from his youth up. Psalm 58, verse 3, we are estranged from the womb. Man goes astray from his birth, speaking lies. You see, you see because we're born with this sinful nature, you've, if you, as soon as the asp is broken free from its egg, you can put your finger near it, it'll bite you, because that's its nature. So as a result of the fall, we are all born sinners with a sinful nature. So being dead to God and being depraved, what is man's natural disposition towards God? Well, in John 3.20, Jesus said he hates the light and will not come to it. He won't do it. Why would he do it? Because he hates it. He hates the truth. He 
hates God's requirements. He even hates God's grace. Because if he's going to be religious, he's going to be something he earned. It's going to be some good thing he did, some religious exercise that he engaged in. He doesn't want grace, though. That's not, the sinner doesn't like that. Colossians 1.21 says he's an enemy of God in his mind. Before I was saved, I was the nicest guy that I knew. I had to find out that I was an enemy of God in just about every thought that I had as a schoolboy. Romans 8, 7 says the unbeliever is hostile to God. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 goes so far as to say that every thought that proceeds from God, man, the unbeliever considers it to be foolishness because he can't understand it. So what, what is his natural disposition towards God? Let's get this straight. He hates God. He hates the one true God. And the very idea of personal holiness is offensive to him. Also, surely men can do some things to please God. Let's see. Proverbs 59 says, The way of the unbeliever is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 15.8 says, Even the religious activities of the unbeliever is an abomination to God. Therefore, we can see that there, there are millions of people as we look out into the world who are passionate about being religious, who have no interest in coming to Christ or submitting to him. Proverbs 28.9 says, if one turns away his ear from hearing God's law, that is, he has no interest whatsoever in being submissive to Christ, even his prayer is an abomination, which tells us that there's a lot of people praying who have no interest in being submissive to God. Unbelievable. So, no, nothing he can do can please God. He is, she is an abomination to God. In fact, Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, even his righteousness is filthy rags to God. That's a different opinion, isn't it? Well, um, there's nobody seeking God. What about those people? I mean, there's obviously some goodness in them. Well, let's look and see what the Old Testament says about that. Psalm 10, sorry, 10 verse 4 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked doesn't seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Isaiah 64, 7, There is no one who calls upon God's name who rouses himself to take hold of God. Well, did it get better in the New Testament? Romans 3, 10 to 12 says, There is no one that seeks God. No, not one. Now they're seeking gods, but not the one true God, not the God of holiness, not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All the scripture is unanimous in declaring the total depravity, the total inability of man to respond to God, an inability that is the product of his utter loathing to do so. They can't do it because they're not permitted or they're not able. No, they can't do it because they won't do it. If you hate God, you can't serve him. Uh, so that's the doctrine. Very simply put, we use hardly any scriptures. There's a, there's a, there's the whole Bible is full of scriptures supporting this. Now let's look at the importance of the doctrine of total depravity. In all honesty, I, I, I was telling Debbie in, in the car here that I, I think that the most wonderful doctrines, not only for encouragement, but, but also as a foundational doctrine 
There, there can be hardly any that is more important than the doctrine of total depravity. Because outside of that doctrine, you, you really have no concept of who God is and who you are and what, what salvation is all about. You have, you have just a vague idea. Let's engage in a little logic. <clears throat> Let's suppose that you believe that man does not enter into the world ruined and hopeless. That you do not believe that man is spiritually blind, that he is dead in trespasses and sins, that his nature is hostile to God, that he, that he, that he actually cannot understand God, that he thinks the words of God are foolishness, and that he therefore will not respond to God. I suppose you don't believe any of that. Well, then of necessity, necessity, you will believe that uh, God, having done everything that he's done, that salvation not only requires, but is dependent on. That is, it utterly hinges upon man deciding, man choosing, man responding, man being willing to come to Christ and then taking steps to do so. Man wanting to be holy all of a sudden. Well, if that's what you believe, consequently, you must logically conclude that salvation is not all of God. You don't have the right to conclude otherwise, because that's what your doctrine says. Now, if, on the other hand, you accept exactly what it is that God repeatedly declares about man's condition, that man is ruined and hopeless, that he is spiritually blind, he is spiritually dead to God, he is dead in his trespasses and sins. He, he sins because he loves to sin. He's hostile to God. He's unable and unwilling to serve God. If you believe that, only then are you in possession of a theology that is entitled to proclaim that salvation is all of God. As Jonathan Edwards said, that there is no hope for a man apart from his personal election by the Father, his particular redemption by the Son, and the supernatural operations of the Spirit of God within him. It comes to salvation. If God left any of it to you and me, any of it, no one would ever get saved. In Matthew 19, 25, the disciples ask, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, with man, it's impossible. Just get that right. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Which is why the Lord Jesus in John 15, 16 says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Which is why Jonah chapter 2, verse 9 says, salvation is of the Lord. And many other passages, by the way. In Romans 9, 18, God assures us that he has mercy on whoever he wants to have mercy. Basil Eden said, the failure to understand the truth of the doctrine of total depravity explains the futile attempts of social reformers to morally elevate the masses, the ineffectiveness of polit politicians to legislate righteousness, a complete failure to rehabilitate criminals by treating sinful choices as a disease, and all of this simply is what happens when you underestimate the evil of man's nature and overestimate his moral capabilities. 
George Whitfield said, I look upon the doctrine of total depravity not merely as a doctrine of Scripture, but as a foundational truth of Scripture. So we've looked briefly at the doctrine, looked briefly at the importance of the doctrine. Now, let's look at the practical value of the doctrine. And I want to do so as it relates to two things. And first of all, evangelism. You see, if you believe that man is dead to God, as, as the word says, that as Romans 8, 7 says, that he does not submit to God and cannot do so. Remember, cannot do so because he, he hates God. You will understand, along with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that the only hope of anybody ever getting saved is that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then the Gentile. And when you believe that, when you get that truth, you're going to take care to preach the gospel accurately, to preach the gospel clearly, which is what the Apostle Paul constantly prayed for. And because God had this view of man, that the power to be saved was not in him, it was in the gospel. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 2, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, if on the other hand, you believe that man's able to respond to God, you know, uh, if you could just persuade him, you have to be pretty persuasive, you know, uh, then uh, you know what you're going to be tempted to do? Be persuasive. Well, how do, you, how, do you, how do you persuade him? That The Bible says in Galatians 5.11 that the gospel is an offense to an unbeliever. We're trying to save people with something that they will find, sell them a product that we know they will be offended by. <laughs> it's exactly what we're doing. But if you believe that man is capable of choosing God and that we're supposed to persuade him, we're going to be tempted to be persuasive. We're going to make our church and the gospel as appealing to him as we possibly can. How do we do that? Well, things that are that you see everywhere. You know, we got to stick Starbucks at the front door. We got to turn the music so uh, the worship service so that it's indistinguishable from a rock concert. We got to have lights and 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 dry ice pouring over the top of. We got to preach on self-help sermons. We're going to reduce the gospel to how to be a better you, how to have success in life. And you know what? You can get thousands of people to join your church. Only trouble is, they're unregenerate. They're not saved. It's it's what. John MacArthur called the first church of the, of the tares. <laughs> That's all you're doing. That's all you're doing. The first practical value of the doctrine affects radically how you go about evangelism. Secondly, how you go about spiritual growth. You and I got saved. We have a new nature. That's, that's something we celebrate. But what about the old one? We still have that old nature. Is he getting better? Ephesians 4, I've forgotten what the verse is, talks about he's not getting better. It, 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 how bad is he? Thomas Boston, dear fellow, uh, I read his autobiography in the early 1700s. He said, until you know every one of you, 
the plague of your own heart. That's talking about your old nature. There's no hope of your sanctification. And why is it that you don't really believe that? He said, you have the plain scripture testimony to it, but, but you see, you are loath to entertain such an ill opinion of yourself. Alas, this is the nature of your disease. Revelation 3.17 is written to the church of Laodicea, and God says to that church, you don't realize that actually you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. How many churches today represent the Laodicean church? Was all they're told is you're one of God loves you. He wants has a better plan for your life. He he wants to make you healthy and prosper your business. Everything. Nothing there about being poor, miserable, blind, and naked and dependent upon God. Paul Azel said the greatest reason why Christians continue to fall into sinful behavior is because they utterly fail to recognize and dread the unlimited evil that they know is in their old nature and that their old nature is capable of. And therefore they fail to guard their hearts and steps and daily pray to God that he would deliver them from temptation. In short, they don't understand the real depravity of their old sinful nature. And you know, the collapse of this doctrine in the church is all the more astonishing. When you bump into people like Somerset Maughan, Somerset Maughan was a, was a writer, he was an unbeliever, he was a homosexual, and he once wrote, if I wrote down every worst thought I've ever thought and every deed I've ever done, men would call me a monster of depravity. How, how amazing that, that, a, that a completely lost person is aware of that, and yet the church is throwing it out the window as a doctrine. Amazing. You see, the the absence of appreciation for how totally depraved your old nature is will rob you of the, of the necessary caution that you would otherwise have in walking circumspectly before God and, and watching and praying that you fall not into temptation because you know that your old nature is a tinderbox. One spark and it's no telling what you'll regret. Only the Holy Spirit can reveal to you the, the sinful nature uh, that you have in your heart, even though you've got a new nature. Uh, the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. We can kind of see why when we look at passages like Psalm 139, verse 23, where we discover that he would pray to God and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. You know, 15 years after World War II, uh, one of the foremost Nazi leaders was Adolf Eichmann. And they discovered this guy hiding out in Argentina. And they went and they caught him and they took him back to Israel to be tried and they televised the whole thing. Well, a Jewish convert to Jesus Christ was watching this at their home with a few other people. And uh, during the trial, he started to weep. Well, the, the Gentile friend of his who was sitting next to him said, oh my goodness, I, I'm sorry. I know your anger must be unbearable. And he replied, no, it's not anger. It's that the longer I sit here, 
the more I realize that I have a heart like this man. He, he, he knew his old nature. The doctrine, the importance of the doctrine, the practical value of the doctrine. What about the history of the doctrine? Because that's, that's very important. In the 1600s, there's a fellow by the name of Jacob Arminius. You've heard me talk about Arminians. Jacob Arminius, he began teaching in the Presbyterian Church in Holland, but he started teaching things that were contrary to the historical teachings of the church. I'd heard these things before. Where's all this stuff come from? So in 16, uh, he and his followers were called up to, to give an account of what it was they believed. And it was a very slow process because it took another 10 years for him to write down what it was that he believed. And him and his followers drew up a document containing five statements of doctrine which explained their views. Well, finally, in 1618, another eight years went by, a synod took place. That was known as the Synod of Dort. And the Synod of Dort consisted of 80 four delegates from five different countries who met in 154 sessions over seven months. And at the conclusion, they rejected all five of these articles of Arminianism, and they came up with five corresponding articles in order to refute them. These are now known more popularly as the five points of Calvinism. But it's very important that you know that the Synod had no intention whatsoever of defining the belief system of Calvin. They were only interested in defining the clear doctrinal positions of the Bible. So what did Jacob Arminius teach? Did he teach total depravity? No. He taught that after the fall, man wasn't dead to God. No, no, no. Rather, his nature was impaired. It was damaged as a result of inheriting Adam's sinful nature. So his car wasn't totaled. He just had a fender bender. Uh, nor, did he, <laughs> nor did he agree that the nature was... Uh, 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 oh, no, no, no. He, 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 let me just make it as simple as this. What he did agree with was was that man's sinful nature was damaged to the point that he couldn't respond to God without the help of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. Well, he had to take that position because there's just so many other scriptures asserting this. But in order to get around it, he said, well, okay, I can see here over and over again in the scriptures, it says no man can come to God without the Holy Spirit. Well, uh, so... Uh, yeah, the Holy Spirit has just showed up and given grace to every single human being on the earth. And now every single human being on the earth is now capable of wanting to be saved, capable of wanting to be holy, capable of wanting to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Let me interrupt myself to say why this is just total garbage. <laughs> Imagine. That the grace of God, let's just follow this, the grace of God has, 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 has come upon all men so that now, if they want, they're capable of choosing Christ. Okay, so in an illustration that I've used before, Jack and Jill grow up in the same house, same experience, same exposure to the gospel. Jack rejects the gospel. Jill accepts the gospel. 
well, if you follow this, then the only reason that Jill accepted the gospel was because there was something inherently good in Jill that was lacking in the other guy, Jack. And therefore, she got saved. Because there had to be something good in her in order to actually say, see the benefits and merits of the gospel and, and their own sin and to come to Christ, which means that God only saves good people. But he said he came into the world to save sinners. So with Arminianism, God has taken, taken the first step, and now it's up to you. It's all your choice. In other words, salvation all hinges upon the sovereign will of man, not of God. Well, Arminianism was condemned by the Council of Dort in 1618, 1619. But here's the astonishing thing. What was recognized as a heresy by our Protestant forebears all through history in the last 150 years has become the prominent view of American Christianity. But God's done his bit, and now it's all up to you, and we're going to try to persuade you with whatever means we can, which will always involve watering down the gospel. Well, largely, what does the term total depravity exactly mean? What are we talking about here? Well, let's look first of all at what it doesn't mean. Total depravity doesn't mean that human beings have no sense of right and wrong. We know that from Romans chapter 2. In fact, Romans 2.14 says, when Gentiles who do not have the law, that means God's law, when, when they do things required by God's law, they're a law for themselves, even though they don't have God's law. Since they show, I mean, why would they be doing things according to God's law? Ever since they show that the requirements of God's law is written on their hearts, their consciences bearing witness to it, and their thoughts now accusing them or defending them. You see, let's look at this another way. If you go into the world, and it doesn't matter what culture you're in, and you say, thou shalt not steal, there's no culture that's going to say, well, what's that mean? What, what, what does that mean? And you explain it to them, and they go, well, is that wrong? No, they all know it's wrong. And you know why they know it's wrong? God says because it's, it's the basic law of God is written on every single human heart. And their conscience sounds off when that is violated. That's what the conscience role is, which is why it's very important that you fill your mind with Scripture and you educate your, your heart beyond the basic requirements of God's law. So if a Hindu has his own rules and he, he spent his entire life uh, filling his mind and his soul with those rules, his conscience will still sound off if he violates that. But God's basic law is, is on our hearts, and the conscience will, will, will violate it. First Timothy 4.2 talks about those who have a seared conscience, which we call today sociopaths or, or psychopaths. They violated their conscience to the point that it no longer sounds off. But... It only doesn't sound off when they're committing a crime, when they're breaking the law. But, however, because the law of God is still written on their heart, they're going to get really sensitive if you lie and cheat on them. So what does it not mean that human beings have... It means, doesn't mean that human beings have no sense of right and wrong. It doesn't mean that, they're, that lost human beings have no qualities at all. In Matthew 7, 11, Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. So you can't say they have no qualities at all. 
Well, where do these sinners get these qualities? Well, first of all, they're made in the image of God, and there's some remnant of that that's still functioning. Number two, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about the amazing restraining grace of God upon the human soul, on people. And I think they're much worse than they appear to be because of the restraining grace of God. And then thirdly, any other quality that a person has is granted to him. It's on loan to him by God. It may be that God ordained them to be in a household with good parents who love them, who instilled great qualities in them over the years, which only makes them more guilty if at the end of the day they reject Jesus Christ. Total depravity doesn't mean they don't have any qualities at all, and total depravity doesn't mean utter depravity. In other words, that every sinner in every area of their life is as depraved and as wicked as it's possible for them to be. Somebody put it this way. They said you, you, a, a six-egged omelet may only have one rotten egg, and yet the whole omelet is tainted by it. So what is total depravity? Well, first of all, it means that the corruption of the human race is universal. There's nobody outside who's escaped it. Psalm 143 verse 2 says, No one is living righteous. No one living is righteous before you. Second Chronicles 6.36, There is no one who doesn't sin. First John 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we haven't sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Galatians 3.22, the scripture declares that the whole world is a, a prisoner of sin. So, so total depravity means that the, human, the corruption of the human race is universal. But secondly, his corruption is extensive. It's affected every part of, of, uh, of a person's humanity. Romans 3.11 says there's nobody who understands, which means that his mind is corrupt. And there's an avalanche of scriptures that buttress that truth. Philippians 3.19, his mind is only ever on earthly things. Romans 1.21, his thinking is futile. Romans 1.28, he has a reprobate mind. Colossians 1.29, his mind is an enemy of God. Romans 8.7, his mind is hostile to God. Well, then you get to Romans 3.11 that says nobody seeks God. So not only is his mind corrupt, but his will is corrupted. Well, what does he seek then? 2 Timothy 2.26 says the devil has taken him captive to do his will. Romans 3.15 says their feet are swift to shed blood. Well, that's not a verse talking about feet. It's talking about their desires, what they run after because they desire it. It's a heart craving for violence. So their heart is corrupt. Uh, Proverbs 21.10, the heart of the wicked man craves evil. How do you think that explains half of entertainment, doesn't it? Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So his mind is corrupt. His will is corrupt. His heart is corrupt. This is your old nature. It, it, when your old nature is doing the thinking, you don't want to pursue that. When your old nature says, oh, this is what we need to do, his will is, is nothing, is something you want to steer clear of. And his affections, you have to watch like a whore. So sinfulness is universal and extensive. So if we were to sum all this up, or, or, or at least look at the, the pinnacle of this truth, what is, what is the most important reason to cherish the doctrine of total depravity of man? And, and this is it. 
is because that it puts God where he belongs, and that is on the throne. It gives God all the glory, 100% of the glory for, for saving sinners. And it puts man where he belongs, and that is in the dust. It's also a very cheering, cheering truth. J.I. Packer said, there's tremendous joy in knowing that God's love to me is based at every point on a prior knowledge of the worst about me. You see, if you, if, if you don't, if you, if, you, if you abandon the doctrine of total depravity, how are you going to get people really interested in Jesus? Because you, as people have said, you've got to get them lost before you can get them saved. If they don't realize how depraved they are, how much they are in need of a savior, why would they ever come to the one true savior? You know, unless, of course, it was the, the other Jesus that just wants to make him wealthy. And then, and then the great thing about the doctrine, as we've alluded to, is that if you realize how evil, uh, and as I said, a tinderbox you, that your old nature is, it will, it, it will drive you to live very closely to Christ and to pray and to watch that you fall not into temptation because of what could happen. And, and then thirdly, of course, you realize, don't you know, that you God chose you. He saved you because before the foundation of the world, he knew you. And he came in power and saved you and loved you with an everlasting love. And as J.I. Packer said, he loved you knowing how bad you could be and how bad you were. He loved you anyway. This is the grand antidote to the Christian who, who wears out themselves every day trying to be good enough for God and earn his favor. You had his favor before you were born. And he loves you with an everlasting love. The doctrine of total depravity affected Spurgeon. He said, when Satan tells me that I'm unworthy, I say, but I was always unworthy. And yet, Lord, you have always loved me. And therefore, my unworthiness cannot be a barrier to having fellowship with you now. This doctrine that requires that salvation belongs entirely to God is a truth that will be the truth that is celebrated in heaven throughout eternity. Revelation 7, 9 says, On that one day in heaven there will be seen a great multitude that no one can count, from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were all wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. So the grand heart of God wants us to have a knowledge of this truth so that, and that is the truth, that our salvation belongs entirely to God so that we might also fall down on our faces before the throne of God and worship him as he should be worshiped. Let's pray. Lord, you, you, you never 
knock us down a peg or two without doing so to, as Spurgeon said, you dig deep in order to build a foundation to build high. And I pray that you dig deep in our lives and we become um, fearful of what we're capable of and ever more dependent to walk close to you, to guard ourselves from temptation, to pray and to watch for it coming down the road that we might cross to the other side. And uh, let us honor you in this life, Lord, and evermore have a heart that is bursting with, a, with a, the ability to see your amazing grace and your love that is for us without intermission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Lord, bless you and keep you and let you know this truth as it, as it uh, causes you to drive yourself ever closer to this, this desire to, to grow ever closer and walk ever closer with Jesus. So go in peace and go with Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to Dr. Bez. Tune in next week as we continue studying the Word of God. May God bless you.